Are you working on your author career, but struggling to get that first book published? Does the goal of being an author seem too lofty? Or thoughts of having multiple books and making a full-time living are as fantastical as living in Cinderella's castle? Welcome to Discovered Wordsmiths, a podcast where aspiring authors can be heard. Join Steven Schneider as he finds and talks to authors you may not know, but authors that have gotten their foot on the author career path. Hear what they've done to get there and where they want to go now. Settle back. It's time for a bit of inspiration and advice. Come listen to today's Discovered Wordsmith. Hello and welcome to another episode of Discovered Wordsmiths. Today, I have Stephanie Ellis. She is a horror writer out of England. So it's a fun conversation because I don't get to talk to horror authors too often. And I do enjoy reading horror myself. Uh, there's also Roland on today's episode. He's back talking to us about some items of interest to authors, including changes to Bookshop, uh, Hugh Howie, and uh, some more stuff. So we have a great conversation on that. And you'll also notice that I have behind me my pictures and my uh, <laughs> my book cover in um, uh, actual frames, so I don't look like a teenager sticking stuff on the wall. I still have to get my Funko Pop muses hanging up, So, uh, but things are looking better. So anyway, uh, I won't babble too long. Here's Stephanie, and before that, here's Roland. So for today, you you had a couple topics, all good topics. Where would you like to start? Well, I really like that. We talked about the bookshop. Everyone's yes. heard of bookshop.org. You know, it came up. I think they existed a little bit before the pandemic, but it, they really sort of announced themselves at the beginning of the pandemic when right. it was hard to get into a bookstore. And so a lot of uh, they came out and said, if you're a small bookstore and you don't have your own online sales method, you can use ours and we will be your storefront. And, um, you know, I don't know what the commission rates are, but it's not just like an affiliate thing. It's like they, they get, they get a big chunk of it. Right. Yeah. And the book doesn't even, doesn't even have, is not even stocked in, in that store. It's stocked. It's either stocked or printed on demand through Ingram's uh, channels. Right. And I yeah. remember the the big debate and the blow up and so many people were upset and didn't want to support it. And it was going to ruin the industry, just like everything. Oh, my God, this is it. That's the end. Everything's ruined now. And I didn't quite understand it because I'm like, isn't this a good thing that we're controlling we have another choice to control where we want things to sell we're supporting our local bookstores and they're helping us it, it you know it was a mutually beneficial thing for the most part yeah i mean i think i thought they thought at the time that it was disingenuous of bookshop that like they were like that it was not a good deal for the bookstores but you know like yeah it's still a better deal if you have your own it's still better Right. right. Uh, if you have your own online store, it's still better. You're going to make a bigger percentage. Um, but then you also have to factor in the, you know, the the physical, the shipping costs yourself, the, the people costs of you know, the warehousing costs. Right. The do you have the book and stock costs, all those kinds of things. And so, yeah, like it's it's probably not as good as having your own from a, like a bo very bottom line if you haven't very dialed in one but if you don't have anything at all right you're going to lose out 
Exactly. Because they're going to go to Amazon. That's where most people go. You know, it seems like this is, hey, this is helping me, the author. This is helping our local bookstore keep it community. You know, I think, I don't know, maybe this is politics. (laughs) But I had this idea that was a little similar to that where independent authors would all have 10 books printed and there'd be, you know, five of us. And each of us would give the other two of our books. So we'd all have the 10 authors' books, two copies of each. And we'd go to our local bookstore, have a little display and say, hey, these are all donated to you, the bookstore. All we ask is that you put them in the display so people could see them. You promote them a little bit. Uh, We get pictures. So the authors can all say, hey, my book is at these 10 stores across the country. Here's pictures to show my book in the store. And then if the owner of the store sells the books for $2 a piece. Well, they made 20 bucks, but it was a marketing thing for authors. I got so much resistance to that. I'm like, why? Well, I'm not going to spend all that money to print books up. And I'm like, it's cheaper than other marketing and it's helping local bookstores. And they're like, well, I don't even go to my bookstore. How can you say, oh, it's a shame bookstores are disappearing when you don't shop at bookstores, you don't give your book to bookstore, you know? And I think this bookshop was kind of the same thing. People just sometimes don't grasp the 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 things that it could affect and the parts of it that, you know, I, I don't know, maybe I'm wrong. I just always thought bookshop was a great idea. And I think what they're doing is great. Yeah. I think it's sort of, sort. I mean, it, it stuck around, right. And it's still yeah. doing well. And um, I think there was another issue where, and then we'll go on to the actual news story in a second, but the, oh, other, yeah. I think <laughs> the other issue was that you could, it started off as supporting your local bookstore, right? But then some authors thought, "Oh, you know what? I can make my own recommendation list, and I get like an affiliate thing through it, right?" And then suddenly, you now you've you've cut out the bookstore. So like now, just because it's bookshop.org, it gave the impression that you, the author, were supporting your local bookstore, but in reality, you were just supporting yourself. So I think so. It's so it's two things. So like. And I even see authors promoting it. Hey, support your local bookstore. Go out and use my link. And I go to their link and it's their own curated list, which is totally fine to have, but you're not supporting a local bookstore except for the the sense that Bookshop donates a tiny percentage of, I don't know, it's tiny, a a small percentage of their profits to support local bookstore fund, this local bookstore fund. Um. <clears throat> but it's a little bit disingenuous. And, and I don't know how many authors realize disingenuous by the authors. I don't know how many of the authors realize that that's what they're doing, that they're, that that when they do that part of it, now they're hurting the bookstore. Right. Right. I, or I, at I, least not supporting them. I, I, yeah. I, I guess I'm of a different mindset. I, I did an author event at the local library and there's a lady in town that does a pop-up bookstore. She orders mm. from Ingram. Uh, she, she, you know, coordinates with some local wineries and the local uh, popcorn and ice cream shops and the library. And she sets up uh, a bookstore and people buy the books and she tries to get new books and uh, she supports local authors a lot. We had an author event. She has all of our books there. And I gave her, I had a couple books. I'm like, here, take these three books. I got them. She's like, well, how much are they? I'm like, no, just take them. If you make some money and stay in business, you're going to be happy. You're going to call me when there's opportunities and I can send people, Hey, you're, you don't like my books. I write middle grade, you know, but you like this, go buy them from her. It, it seems to me that's yeah. a better way of working. 
Well, I think I like your idea, especially if you're giving out like your first in series, right? right? Because then, you know, if the, if the person who buys it likes it, then they're going to buy the second in series and the third in series. And so, right. so yeah, it was a small investment, but you're investing in that pop-up bookstore and also in your own series. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. So yeah. The, the- yeah so, so, the, so the big news this week. I mean, from bookshop.org is now they're by the end of this year, they're going to be selling ebooks as well. Yes. Which I think is pretty cool. Um, I mean, obviously they have a long way to go. There's there are other there are plenty of ebook markets out there, like Kobo and you know, um Barnes and Noble and Apple all have ebooks, uh, Google Play and some of these these um even smaller ones, but Bookshop.org is one that's recognized is a is a store at least it's it's recognized and it's seen as an alternative to Amazon in the print market. Yeah. So if people can sort of flip that switch in their mind and say, oh, they also have eBooks, um, that could be a great opportunity. I, I'm interested to see what happens with that too. I mean, it would be great if they partnered up with like Draft to Digital and I could click and shoot my books over to Bookshop. But if I want to support my local bookstores, I don't want to just list it as myself or whatever. You know what I'm saying? I, I'm mm-hmm. curious to see what they're going to do because they also talked about creating their own reader program. And I know that's a big hurdle uh, because, oh, I've already got Kindle. Well, I've got Kobo. It doesn't work on my Kindle. So people you know, don't want to sit at their computers uh, flipping through on a browser reading books. So I, I think there's some. Well, they did. They did mention there's going to be an app as well that they're right. working on an app. Um, personally, like I, I love Book Funnel. They, I mean, not not all authors realize. I, I'm a reader as well as you are, right? <clears throat> but not all authors realize that Book Funnel also has a reading app that's yes. really good. So, like for my own books, I recommend you know my readers when they buy the book directly from me or I get them like an arc read an arc read through book funnel i say you can read right you don't need to send it to your kindle or you don't need to read it in this other app you can read it just download the book funnel app and you'll have your whole catalog of book funnel books right that all the authors have ever sent right in there and um so like i mean i would wish that bookshop.org would partner with book funnel and just and just do that and the great thing with Book Funnel is they do offer it ways to get it so you can read it through Libby or mm-hmm. Kindle or your other readers, whatever works for you. Because for me, it's, I you know, that shift in your brain, like you said, <laughs> it's kind of like, okay, I've got my Kindle, which is kind of like having my um, bookshelf over in this room. So I go here to look at the books. Huh, I don't see the book I'm looking for. Well, I've got my Book Funnel. And that's a bookshelf in this other room. So I got to go check books there. Oh, that doesn't work. Well, where's my book that I'm looking for? Well, now I got to go to a bookshelf in a third room to look. That's a, a slight stumbling block, uh, which is like you said, it'd be great if they partnered with BookFunnel because now I can choose all my books and push them into Kindle. Yeah, I know it's supporting Amazon, it's all that, but that's where I already have a lot of books. If I get them from other places, I could just read them on the same app and see them in the list. No, I mean, it's not really supporting Amazon. I mean, it, I mean, if you get it on your Kindle, you own your Kindle. Exactly. Right? Yeah. So, yeah. And it's, and it's side loading it in there. So you don't right. need to feel like you're supporting Amazon. You're using a tool that you already have. Um, like, right. Yeah. So I, I, I just, you know, a lot it. of people it's Amazon stay away from it, you know? So, <laughs> yeah. Well, this also gives me hope like that 
they um, might one day add audiobooks down the road too, because the book, you know, book funnel, for instance, if, you know, also has an audiobook reader. Right. And there are, my suspicion is that there are some other, there's like Chirp. I mean, there's some tools that look fairly similar. And I don't know how much of these apps are written from the ground up or use some sort of a, you know, sort of a canned audiobook reading right. reader, you know, kind right. of behind the scenes. Um, but yeah, there's certainly some opportunity there to, once they get ebooks going to do some audiobook stuff, that would be great. Uh, then that, that could be like a, you know, it would be the only place where you can get print ebook and audio all in one, one spot. And they seem pretty savvy. You maybe you could be able, they would be able to offer bundles. Who knows? That would be cool. Uh, that that would definitely yeah. be pretty because I, I I'm I'm one of those people. I really love this book. Uh, I bought the ebook. Oh look, I I walked into Barnes and Noble and there it is on the shelf. Well, I'll get a, a physical copy because the cover is cool and I like have you know I, I have multiple yeah. copies of my favorite books. <laughs> yeah, I do that specifically with nonfiction. I'll buy the audiobook version and right. the print version usually, so I can have it on my desk to go through and make notes and stickies and bookmarks and things like that. Um, but then listen to the the nonfiction on my walks usually or my drives. Right. Yeah. Yep. So yeah. it'll be interesting to so, keep up. So this part was not just, this part was not controversial, but it was just exciting, right? So yes, it's an exciting yes. opportunity. Wait, so wait and see, but the controversial part of it is the next part of their announcement is that they have started bookshop has started to also be as a publisher, right? Yes. And that's not the controversial part. The controversial part is that if you go with them as a publisher, you're basically agreeing not to have your book sold on Amazon. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that's going to be an yeah. uphill battle and climb. I must yeah. say. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I feel for the, I feel for the people who want to do that because like not, not selling on Amazon is like saying, you know, I don't want to support their huge um, dominance in the marketplace. And I want to, you know, have my book so that they're going to distribute not only to bookshop.org, I mean, to that site, but also to other, you know, other bookstores like indie stores and, right. you know, I, I don't know, maybe Barnes and Noble. I, I don't know, but not to Amazon. So I think it's going to make it tough to sell books, but I think there have been some, I mean, we've talked before, like uh, Corey Doctorow didn't release his um, audiobook on Amazon. He released it pretty much every like other places. And Brandon Sanderson also has decided not to release his latest audiobooks, uh, his Kickstarter audiobooks on Amazon, right. but to place them other places. So there's sort of a precedence for somebody if you have a big audience and you can drive your audience to where your books are, there can be a benefit. I don't know that I would recommend that for a new a new author. Right. And, and Unfortunately, you know, you get, I don't disagree with all the independents. I want to support all of that. But from the business standpoint, my business brain, if I had a business manager, you know, and they're like, well, uh, you know, you sell kids books. 98% uh, of all parents buy kids stuff on Amazon, including kids books. And you need to put on Amazon. It would make it hard to not do that from the business standpoint. You know, I think everybody needs to really look at it because like, for example, Kindle Unlimited, I'm not in Kindle Unlimited because kids don't read Kindle Unlimited books. <laughs> so right. it's irrelevant. So I don't have to worry about that part of the 
you have to be exclusive. But you know, yeah. do I want to take things out of Kindle to go here? And do I want to use them to go through if I already have an account elsewhere myself? It's 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 a lot of juggling sometimes. Absolutely. Yeah. Now, now so, one of the things I didn't see is like the pricing structure, and Amazon does this that if you're in their special program and you don't put it elsewhere, you get higher commissions. But uh, if you put certain things elsewhere, you get lower commissions. Uh, that would open it up more. It's like, look, I, I'm not going to put it on Amazon through you, but I I am, do have it on Amazon. So I'll take a lower commission to use your service for these other places. Maybe, it, you know, it, it's just I'd rather have the options and see what all my options are for all the different stores and places. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Well, it's definitely interesting to see to see what happens, and you know, like I could see a case for I don't know. Personally, I wouldn't. I know I'm not in a position like I'm not a <clears throat> I'm not a big name author enough, right, for my business to do to own to not be on Amazon eventually. You know, right. so could I do something like ideally for me? I write primarily nonfiction. It would be to 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 launch my book on Kickstarter. Um, I could then sell direct. Then maybe I could put the book in other stores and let everyone know that you know, you know, here's your best ways to support me is to buy your book through me or through these other stores. And then maybe I would eventually add it to Amazon. I would have like a like a third launch almost on Amazon. Right. Um yeah, but but I, I think long term. So I guess that would be like if you have like the sort of the slow launch philosophy where you don't need the the big the big bang right um, right at the beginning. But considering most, you know, like 80, 90 percent of books sales come from Amazon for most authors anyway, like you could still have that big bang. Even if you launched on Amazon months later. Right. Yeah. yeah. Or, you know, yeah. even maybe the opposite. I launch on Amazon and get that quick, fast money, pull it off later and do something. Else. There's multiple strategies and things to do. Uh, I mean, yeah. I, I go through draft the digital street lib published drive along with Barnes and Noble and Kobo, my own accounts, you know, so. Yeah. Well, I mean, it will also be interesting because so here you have. Like I, to your, to your listeners, like they may not understand, like not all of them might not understand the intricacies of how wholesaling of books works and things like that. So if this, these books are in the Ingram catalog, right? And there's, I don't know that there's anything to stop them. Like if they're in the Ingram catalog, you can't make an exclusive deal and say, oh, just this indie bookstore, just indie, you know, just right. these, these stores, right? Um, you could, if you purchase them yourself and then distributed to these stores, you could. But if they're in the Ingram catalog, like I could start my own bookstore, right? And I could order, you know, a thousand copies of this book. Right. And then I could also sell them on Amazon. I can be an Amazon seller. So now this bookshop.org exclusive book, if they put it in the Ingram catalog, could still show up on Amazon, but I'm going to get the biggest chunk of the money, not right. bookshop or the author. But you are the author, so now you, you're. No, no, I'm saying that. that yeah. Like, let's say I started my own store. Like, I'm not. Right. I'm like, I'm Joe. Uh, okay, I'm some I... guy named Joe, and I want to. You know what? I'm going to start my own bookstore. You know what? I also want to do an online stuff. I'm going to use Amazon as an one of my online distribution pl platforms. I could list that book on Amazon, 
Right. right. Well, I mean, I don't know if you've ever seen any of your books listed, like your used copies, but oh, you know, yeah. people can also sell yeah. new copies. People uh, sell uh, new uh, copies of my book on Amazon. You know, Amazon isn't really involved except for the fact that they have a store right. and this other company is, you know, buying a couple of my books and selling them on Amazon. Right. So there's nothing to stop that person from doing that with these bookshop.org exclusives. Right. Yeah. So we'll see what happens. We'll see what we happens will. when that when that pans out. I did there's find a test, it very interesting. Test case. Right. I did find it very interesting that uh, we keep hearing prints dead and nobody goes to bookstores yet. Drafted digital and now bookshop added print just recently. So uh, maybe it's not so dead. No. 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 Yeah. Well, and speaking of what's not dead, or or the next story we're going to talk about, right? Yes. Is is the ebooks are not dead because like as much as you just said people are saying print books are dead there's a whole other group of people that say ebooks are dead right right and you know all evidence to the contrary like for most indie authors ebooks are doing great right, right. and they're they're not only um you know and the, and as evidenced here in this article um on publishers weekly Bowker, who is the supplier of ISBN numbers, right. ISBNs in in America, um, collects all the data, right? Because they have a whole dashboard. You go in there if you've used it. You know, you, yep. you you put in your imprint, you put in the name of your book, your genre, all those kind of things, and then and then click when it's published. That's the only way to you know to to use the number. And they've been tracking it, and they found that eBooks are not dead. These right. ISBNs that are being purchased for eBooks are actually going up, right? And yeah, so they're like the numbers were pretty were pretty surprising. Yeah, like 2 um, million each of the last couple of years. Yeah, yeah. And so since I think was it since 2017, I think it was when it um when it really 2016 or 2017 when it's really started to pick up. Right. Yeah. Um and it, the the thing also, that's just the not the ISBNs that we're buying ourselves to control. That's not counting all the people who put something up on Amazon or draft a digital and just use one of those free ISBNs through that service. So that yep. that number could be totally different. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and these are just you know they, they track whether it's an indie publisher or not the big five, right? So right. like this is just the indie numbers, and like we go back to what we talked about a few weeks ago. You know, like ebooks don't sell to tradi for traditional publishing because they price them weird. They, yeah. you know, they do weird. They do weird things to them. They, you know, they make their hardcover books the same or less than the right. ebook sometimes. So, like, yeah. you know, if you have a choice between an ebook and a nice hardcover book with free shipping from Amazon, like, what are you going to choose? Like most of the time, right. Unless you're like some sort of, unless you're a, like a, a road warrior and, or you're living, you know, like you're a minimalist, you're probably going to get the, the hardcover. Right. You know? And then, so of course the ebook's not going to sell well. And, and the other thing that struck me as just looking at these numbers, that's a lot of ebooks getting ISBNs. And we know there's a lot of books being published and I, you still hear authors say, Oh, I, I, you know, I don't like marketing. I don't like being a business. I just want to write. But you want to be an independent author and not try and get a traditional publisher. It, 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 you got to do the marketing. You got to get out there and get your book. I, I hear shout. where you're going with this. Yeah. yeah. You yeah. know, 
Yeah, I think what you're saying, like if you don't market your book, like how are they going to find your book with 2 million? If there's 2 million books a year being published, right. how are they going to see your book unless you're telling your audience or telling your prospective audience that your book even exists? Right. Yeah. yeah. You, you got to yeah. get out there and shout, you know, let them know about your books in, in whatever way works for you. Uh, that's a lot of ISBNs. <laughs> That is a lot of ISBNs, but it's good news, right? Yeah. I mean, they, they, the article, you know, I don't know if you do the show notes with the links, but um, in the article, it talks a little bit about the money that's being made too, right? Yeah. And so it's, and which genres are taking off the most and, you know. One of the things I, I do is I have a talk uh, with parents to get them to understand that our kids are going through school and they're kind of being told they're being taught uh what to expect in the future as if it was still the 50s uh and that doesn't really exist it's a whole different world and i've talked to several kids on my show that have published books at the age of 16 and they've written whole books and my whole point is they're going to be the ones coming out and competing but with everything we've got you have control and you have choices you you don't ever have to stay in a job that you hate and you don't enjoy because you can do other things. There's multiple things you can do. And I've been doing a talk for parents about that. And this mm -hmm. just kind of shows, you know, people are, we had some rough years uh, going through all the pandemic. It's not completely smoothed back out, but uh, the number of small businesses that got open during the pandemic jumped significantly also. So people mm -hmm. are starting to realize that maybe I can do something other than go to a job where they tell me how much I can make and how much I have to work. So that's, that's a yeah. significant thing I've been pushing lately. Yeah, that's cool. I like that. Yeah. Well, let's talk about that. More? Pardon me. What? You have time for one more. Absolutely. Let's here? go for it. Yeah. So this next one I think is, um, it's good news, but it's really, it's actually just kind of cool news, right? Yes. So Steven, I don't know how long you've been in this, publishing game right on the edge of howie's big uh you know explosion okay so my my first book was out in 2012 right and so that was right around the time when i really started getting in and started following hugh howie and read read his first book called wool right right and the great news is that like now this is being turned into a streaming show on apple tv plus in, in conjunction with amc and and i watched the trailer i don't know if you watched the trailer but the trailer is amazing i haven't watched it yet no i, I will yeah, get to that tim robbins is in it yeah rashida jones yeah i love her and um yeah she's amazing he's amazing and it's like a big but it's a big budget thing so like i'm not saying this is like oh you know this gives every author hope but uh, but there's but there's two things here yeah, there is some hope because indie. This gives indie authors, and you can argue whether he's an indie author now. He be, was started off as an indie author. He got so much notoriety that he was able to make a traditional deal, right. and he's gone back and forth. Some of his books are indie, so he's a hybrid now. But he sort of set the stage and, like you know, made indie, being indie author an indie author a legitimate thing in the eyes of many, including Hollywood now. Right? right. So that's a that's a big thing. But also, it's like okay, so this is ten years later you know, 10 years later and you think, well, that's a long time, but in the grand scheme of things, it's not that long. Right. So like I'm, what I'm, what I'm hoping is that it kind of uh, gives people 
the idea that like, you know, if you keep writing and you keep doing well, you keep publishing books, you give readers what they want to read. And if you write in series, you're going to have them write this, the, write the next book, the next book, the next book. News can get out there. Like news about your book can get out there. Hugh Howie is not the only one. Like um, Johnny B. Truant from the self, uh, right? I was going to say Truant, that. We the talked about vampire. him a while. The fat vampire is now Reginald, uh, Reginald the vampire, right? Right. I think that's what it's called <clears throat> on Sci Fi Channel. And, you know, there's a couple other ones. There's a couple of urban fantasy indie authors who had their work picked up. And, you know, like, Things can happen for indie authors. That being an indie author is no longer the barrier yes. that we thought. Being an indie author is no longer a barrier to being a traditional author, which was once the fear, right? Yes. But it's also no longer a barrier to being taken seriously um, by something. If your content is good, if you're in, if you're, I don't know if you can hear the trash truck came. I don't know no, if, I it's, can't hear it. if it's or good. Um, but like, if you're, if you got some good IP. Right, you've got some good IP. They don't care that you're an indie. They don't right. care if you're traditional. They care that you have a good story with a lot of readers, and so they can, um, you know, so they can make a successful show. Yeah, and I think that's super. That the the Hollywood, the higher ups are changing their thinking on that. That they're realizing we need to find some good stuff. Just because it's Star Wars, you can flub it up as a corporation and get people upset and it doesn't make money. <laughs> but now we're finding we've got other content from these indie authors and, you know, maybe they're, maybe we should give that a try. And oh my gosh, it's actually working. And yeah, it, it the whole, you know, I'm sure Joanna Penn's ecstatic about all of this. She's been doing it super long. And I know uh, Hugh was on, uh, was it Writers Inc with Jay and JD uh, a couple of times when he was on mm -hmm. set giving, uh, you know, here's yeah. what we're doing and stuff. So yeah, it's, it, there's so much. So my next thing is we need to start getting some video games created based on these books, on these IPs. We need to get mm, that yeah. rolling. You know, that that's the next thing I, I, I work with kids in video game storytelling. So I, I'm looking at, you know, what can we do to help push this to get video games going based on some of these books that might be a little longer, harder sell for right now, but I'll be on the forefront of it then, Roland. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, I don't know as much about video games. Like maybe more video games. Maybe is it less expensive? Is it easier to make a video game for these things than it is? Like, are there more video games produced than there are movies and streaming shows? Like, I don't know. The, I don't know the financial parts right. of it or the work involved. Um, but yeah, and uh, and are, is the barrier lower? Do video game fans just like cool stuff and it doesn't have to be necessarily a tie-in to something right right like yeah like yeah i i haven't have you seen uh reginald the the fat vampire show no not yet have you did you read the book i did uh i i, I read the book so in anticipation of the show it's on uh sci-fi uh which i don't think i have a way to watch it at the moment <laughs> It's not like there's not enough streaming services. Yeah, I think what happens. So I looked into it, and it was on Sci-Fi. And I think what happens is I have to you have to wait a certain amount of time, and then they're going to probably distribute it to other streaming services where yeah. I can, where I can because I don't really don't mind rent like renting it or buying it, right? Um, or getting like a you know rent if it may maybe it'll be on something that I already want to get, and I can like binge for a whole month. Right. Like I'm getting ready to binge. I'm getting ready to sign. I don't. 
I'm not a annual subscriber to Paramount Plus, but every but about once a year, I subscribe for a month or two to watch to, to binge my Star Trek stuff. Yes, and, then, and there's uh, been a lot off. of it. Yeah, yeah. And well, yeah. Um, our local one of our local libraries gets a lot of DVD movies, uh, way more than I would give them credit for such a small library. And they get some interesting stuff that I'm like, what is this? So I'm hoping because Reginald's uh, AMC, I'm hoping it'll go to AMC Plus. I might do the same thing through Amazon and get AMC plus subscription for a month or two to watch it. Uh, mm, but I'm kind of hoping the library gets copies on DVD if they come out with it like that. Uh, we'll see. Oh, that would be cool. Yeah. I guess that's the benefit for television. Like television, sometimes they still put stuff out on DVD where like Netflix doesn't really put their stuff out on DVD. Right. Yeah. They'll never do that. Even though they still have the DVD service. <laughs> <laughs> So, yeah, yeah, all right. Cool. Well, uh, those were great. Uh, I can't wait to see what happens with all of those with bookshop uh, and especially the Hugh Howie TV show. So if you get to watch it, let me know. Uh, yeah, I think um, it comes out in into May, right? Pretty or soon. Get, yeah. Cause they said in May, I think May through June, I think is what it said it was going to be showing. Yeah. Um, but that gives me some time to, to watch, uh, to find out how to watch fat vampire original, yes. the vampire. Yeah. I think they're calling it now. And um, yeah. Well, I, I'm behind on Star Trek. Yes, I'm behind on Star Trek myself. So it's not like, you know, with summer coming up, there's nothing for me to sit in the house to watch, you know? So there's just too many things. It's too many. There's too many things. Yeah. I, I went and whittled down my books. I was going through my bookshelf going, okay, I know there's some of these I, I, I got on a whim or whatever. I'm not going to read. I went through my books. I'm looking at it and I'm like, I have like a Dean Koontz book. That sci-fi from the early 70s before he started doing all the horror and thrillers. Oh, wow. Um, I found a Heinlein book that I picked up at a yard sale or something that I'm like, wow, I don't even recognize it. And I went through and uh, three books I found that I don't think I'll actually read. <laughs> I'm like, that did not help oh. for all the time I spent <laughs> looking through the books. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Yeah. Like, I'm, I I always pick up books, those little free libraries. Yeah. And then I'm like, am I actually, I have to like, ask myself, am I actually going to read this? Because if I just take it, I'm depriving somebody else of this. Right. Book. Yes. Like, so I, I found Logan's run. I love the movie. I wow. read the book years and years ago. Yeah. I, I, so I, I, I read it and I, then I took it back to a little free library. So. Yeah. I, I, every time I, I keep track of the books, I either donate them to the little library or there's a group I'm part of that they do a book sale and they use the money for scholarships for kids. So oh, I don't those two places, but I always keep some books in my car. And if I see a little library, I go and shove my book in the little library, get a picture of it. You know, it's like, oh, hey, IRS. Yeah, I was driving to this little library. That's why I'm writing this off on my on my gas <laughs> mileage. <laughs> hey, yeah. Awesome. So. All right, man. Thanks. Appreciate it. Thank you, Stephen. Yep. Have we'll, a wonderful day and I'll talk to you soon. We'll talk to you later. Right. Bye. Bye. All right, so today on Discovered Wordsmiths, I want to welcome Stephanie Ellis. Good morning or afternoon, Stephanie. How are you? I'm fine. It's actually good evening now. It's nearly six o'clock, and it's if I open the curtains, it'd be dark outside, and it's very cold. I think it's about really? five degrees. And going okay, yeah. So why don't you tell everybody a little bit about yourself, where you live because of the big time difference, and uh, what you like to do besides writing? Okay. I'm currently living in Wrexham in North Wales with my family. We did live in the south of England for about 30 odd years and then came back up to this area because I've got family in Shropshire just over the border. My husband's Welsh 
and we're trying to find a place to, to live after COVID because that made us ch rethink our lives, basically. So we found a place in Wrexham, which is gathering a little bit of on the viewing platforms because of a certain football team, which we can hear when they're at home because they're 10 minutes that way. So if, nice. they're, if it's they're playing at home, open the windows and you can hear everybody. It's a lovely part of the world, a lot of countryside around to do a lot of walking and we can visit elderly parents as well quite easily. So when I'm not writing, I read and I read and I read. But okay. I do walk. I do walk. I like forests. My husband likes hill climbing and mountains. And yes. I think we're in the right part of the world to combine the two. I go to the gym, so I get up from a desk or get up from a chair and put a book down. That's important. <laughs> yeah. And I try and do some drawing, which I used to do a lot of, but I let that go. But I've tried to pick it up again recently. And my one ambition is to learn old English. I've got a book. I keep starting it. I get about six chapters in and then something else happens and I leave it for months and I have to go back to the beginning. I've done the same chapters several times now. Wow. Interesting. Well, there, there's several things. First of all, I want to make sure I'm clear. When you say football, it's not American football. It is the original British football, the round shape ball, not what looks like rugby to us. Your right. football looks like rugby to us, rugby right. with shoulder pads. And Wrexham, I believe my son was really big in the cryptid community. And I think Wrexham has a history of the forest there being a big UFO sighting at one point. That's uh, it. Like I, I haven't. Years ago. Maybe I'm Ooh, wrong. I haven't heard that, but I have joined a local writers group. And one of the writers there is publishing a book about Wrexham and the little quirky tales associated with it. So I will ask him about that. Yeah, that'd be cool. I think that's it. I could be wrong. My son was much more into it. All right. So why did you want to write to get started writing and get a book out and all that? Writing was never something that I'd considered growing up. I was of the generation where you were told you had to have a career and you do your A-levels, you go to college, you do various things. The creative arts didn't get a look in. But after having kids and a bit of a career break, I went back to work, but I got my job as a part-time librarian in a junior school. And then I moved up to senior school and I started to read what was in the libraries there. And I was thinking, I can do this. And when you're in a secondary school, because that is your 11, 16 year olds, it can go up to 18. You were getting in the more adult fiction as well. You would introduce them to adult fiction at that level. And I was reading it. I thought, yeah, I'd quite like to have a go at this. So I started to write and it was initially verse as well. In my day job as a tech author, tech author years ago, I would write verse just to poke fun at people, quietly, <laughs> I should say. But on the story side, I found I enjoyed it and I wanted to continue. And now when I, when I say I need to read each day or reading is part of my life, writing has become the same. I have to keep doing it. I don't know whether you're the same. You have There's this urge. You haven't picked up a book and you need to read. You haven't yeah. picked up your pen. You need to write. Yeah, yeah. I do get the draggy parts. Uh, I don't know if I feel like writing or I don't, whatever. But then you sit down and suddenly it's, oh, look, I got 1,500 words. It just gets so into it. A part, Like you said, a part of you. I agree. Yeah. I will say that when I, the writing, the publishing side, that only happened about eight years ago. I'm 58 now. I'll be 59 this year. I don't make any secret of that. And the lines on my face will give it away anyway. 
but I know that a lot of writers out there sometimes think they're a bit too old or they've left it too late to write and to do this sort of thing. And I'm, I just keep mentioning my age because I say, no, it's never too late. Just because everybody else's profile picture looks as though they're in their 20s. Or when you get to my age, you look about 10. Oh, Show your face makes, just right. <laughs> yeah, if it makes you feel any better, you go look back at some past episodes. I've got all ages. Uh, I know I had one man who was a lawyer his whole career, and then at 74, he decided to write a book. There's plenty of people on the podcast that are 50 and above, even more so than below 50. So it's good to hear. (laughs) Yes. And I've just swollen their numbers. So you've only been publishing for eight years, but you're still new-ish. What's your uh, current book that we're going to talk about? Tell us what it's called and a little bit about it. Okay. It is Reborn. It is a folk horror slash dark fantasy, and it's the sequel to The Five Turns of the Wheel. Um, Both of these were published by Bridget's Gate Press. And although it is a sequel, I would say I've written it in such a way that it is a standalone. So as you read through it, you're fed the little bits of information you need to follow the thread of this particular story. Before I talk about Reborn itself, I'll set the scene a little bit because it is very much a world I've created So it's a little corner of rural England that I've named the Weld. And there are six villages there. You've got a village in the centre and the other five around them. So it's like a wheel. And alongside this very rural little area of England, you've got a supernatural world called Umbra. It's under the rule of somebody called Quail, who is the son of Mother Nature. Now, these people in this supernatural world, which is just out of sight, just beyond the valley, you can't quite see them. But they can come into the real world. And to for this world to survive, they need the blood sacrifice of the people in the world. And the contract is that if they sacrifice, then the Umbrans survive and the villages prosper. So it's supposed to be a two-way thing. In the five turns of the wheel, you had the main character, Megan, who is also a main character in Reborn. And she was one of the villagers who wanted to put a stop to the rituals that happened there and she did this but there's one bit I've forgotten here (laughs) there are three characters in Umbra Tommy Betty and Fiddler who are the sort of bridge between the worlds they come out into the villages and they lead the rituals and I've set them up as a sort of parody of a mama's troupe the little groups that would go around the villages performing plays over the centuries and so you've got Tommy who's the master of ceremonies you've got Fiddler who does the music And then Betty is the comedic character who dresses up as a woman. Supposed to be comedic, but in mine, it's a bit of a monster. Anyway, she stops all these rituals. But when she thinks she's stopped it all, the Mother Nature sends her into Umbra to lessen the cruelty of the people who live there. So she's put in charge of everybody. But in doing so, she's made a rod for her own back. She is tormented by Tommy, Betty and Fiddler who are there. They don't want to be there with her doing as she says, because Tommy is actually Megan's real dad. And then Huayol, who she thought she had destroyed, she destroyed the body, but she hadn't destroyed his spirit. And so he has actually sort of implanted himself inside her mind a bit. And she is stuck with his voice. She's stuck in this world with all these creatures that she doesn't want to be a part of because of their cruelty and what what they've done to her life before. So at the start of Reborn, she's in Umbra. She's miserable. She's haunted by this parasite 
in her mind. As you've got Tommy Petty and Fiddler who are equally feeling ugh because they are weakening. They haven't had any blood sacrifices or anything like that. So the story of Reborn is Tommy, Betty and Fiddler sneak out of Umbra. They want to seek their mother's forgiveness and be allowed to hunt and to have the blood sacrifices again. So they go off to, to find her. Then Megan too, she leaves this world to seek the mother because she's been told that the mother can free her from Whale's voice and can restore her husband to life. So she goes off on a quest. It's very much a quest sort of book. And then there was a third thread, and this is a new introduction. The mother had her husband, was the horned god Sununos, and centuries before he had vanished because he overstepped the mark a bit. The mother is in charge here, I will say. (laughs) So he'd overstepped the mark, but he is allowed to return. So it's his return. So you've got three strands. You've got Megan on her journey. You've got Tommy, Betty and Fiddler on theirs. And then you've got Sununos on his and they're all converging to the one place to face the mother, gain her forgiveness, and to be reborn in various ways. But whether they achieve that aim, whether Megan frees herself, whether the three regain their strength, whether the horned god is allowed his position at her side again, whether it all starts again, you won't know unless you read it. But that's basically the story. But underlying that is a, a fourth strand but it's about the character Betty because when I was writing these characters in the five turns of the wheel I really enjoyed them they are monstrous they're grotesque but they're such great fun but Betty being this animalistic creature I wanted to see where he came from what made him like he is or why did the mother make him like he was and so you throughout you find out what his real name is why his behavior is like it is why he does what he does and so basically that's the story so it's very much a quest with some rituals in there not as much as five turns but the rituals at the end of rebirth for whoever achieves it or whoever gets that far nice okay so you said it's a folk horror it sounds very fantasy-ish like epic quest but it doesn't sound like a middle grade or young adult necessarily you said you're a librarian for kids. Why'd you choose to write in horror genre? I was a librarian for kids, but I like to read very widely. And when I first started writing, it was via short stories and flash fiction. And that's it tended towards the dark side. And when I found a submission call for a, it was a horror anthology and they wanted them on the theme of potatoes. And I've written a story called Death is Not a Potato. And I sent it in. I thought it was dark. I'd never done a horror story before. And they said, no, it's not quite what we want. It was set in the siege of Leningrad and there was death and rats and things, but it wasn't quite what they wanted. I still like the story, by the way. It's not been published yet. But she said this was Teresa Derwin at Nightwatch Press at the time. And she said send other stories for other calls in future. And I did. And she started publishing them. And I found I enjoyed them so much that the horror side is where I write. When I read widely, I do read horror, but I also read a lot of dark fiction as in the classics, but the darker side. I grew up loving Dickens and then I went through a Russian phase (laughs) and they are very grim. (laughs) Yes. And 
because I've read all that. I was never one for the light-hearted or the overtly light-hearted, I would say. So it's always been the horror that's pulled to me. I, though I do try other genres, but with the darkness in there, I can't quite write light stuff. People occasionally say, can you write us a story with a, a happy ending or a hopeful ending? And I'm there and I'm trying, like, I just can't. <laughs> Some, something always goes amiss. And in, in this children's, in the school libraries, there was a lot of, there was light fiction there. But when I left, I was actually starting a horror shelf. They didn't really have too much horror in there. So I created a horror section and I was building that up quite nicely with the indie authors as well, because you find a lot of librarians, when they get books in for kids, they will be sent box of book, boxes of books from various people like Scholastic and things. And they'll buy them and just put them on the shelves. And I thought, no, I love buying books. I want the kids to choose the books themselves. So they tell me what they wanted. I'd have a look and see what I think is Ginger. That's a horror. It's a brilliant website. And it has, they do young adult fiction on there. So I'd be seeing what was there and what I'd like to read. <laughs> so then I'd spend the school budget or that was given the library for these books and build it up that way so you got something more personal. So I would get all sorts in. Just because you read kids' fiction, you don't have to write children's yeah. fiction. I do there's a lot of really good young adult stuff out there, not necessarily horror, but more day-to-day -day realistic stuff, stuff that, where they focus on issues that kids face today, whether it's race or gender or anything like that so there's a, a lot of really good writing out there but I'm as I say I'm not your light fiction and I'm not quite a children's picture book writer I'd like to have a go but it would probably be subverted got it I love that though because you discovered what you write and enjoy writing I know mm -hmm. a lot of authors think oh I read this particular genre so I should write that and they fall into mm -hmm. the trap of forcing themselves to yeah. do and and it doesn't come out right and it doesn't feel good. I was lucky enough, a local author friend of mine and a couple authors actually I, I talked to helped me realize I wasn't an adult writer. I wasn't a thriller writer. I was a kid's fantasy writer. And once that clicked with me, the writing became so much easier. So I think that's an important lesson for any authors listening. Sometimes what don't force your writing, be honest and write and see what it is. Sometimes yeah. that's much better. I would say write what you enjoy. And I do remember writing a bit of Five Turns and it was leading up to the end. And these creatures I created were rampaging around the countryside and destroying everything. And I can remember actually sitting there with a grin on my face. And I thought, it just shows that you're really enjoying it, although I was enjoying it so much that it was going to end in a certain way that I suddenly realised I didn't want it to because otherwise there'd be no more Five Turns books. So I slammed the brakes on. But that was one of the few books, a few stories you just sit there and if you're smiling as you're writing, you know that you know it's working right. for you. be forcing myself. <laughs> yeah. And you said you're published through Bridget's Gate Press, which I've had several authors on for. So yeah. is your book available wide that people can get it in pretty much all the stores? It's on Amazon at the moment. I know Bridges Gate, they're a relatively new press and they're starting to get their books out into stores, I believe, this year. That's their aim. They've been going for about a year and a bit. I know that books can be got from Barnes & Noble and all sorts of places online. So I'm not sure about the store 
side of it over there, but that is something they are building up at the moment. But, but it's available in the online stores. Yeah, yeah. And it'll have all the links and the places actually on their website, which is bridgetsgatepress.com. So if people go there, they'll find all their books. But I would say they, they are a very good press and they've been putting out some really good work lately that I've enjoyed reading because I've been formatting some of the books. Nice. Okay. So I guess you have a preview. <laughs> That's always fun. Do you have a website yourself? I do. It's stephanieellis.org. It's all no spaces in there. Okay. That's good to know. And the book, what is the feedback you're getting from readers? They've enjoyed it. Most of them have read Five Turns. One or two have read it. I looked at one on NetGalley. I try not to read reviews too much. Yeah, I would have a look. And there was one who said that they this they hadn't read Five Turns, but they'd read this one and they were able to make sense of it and they really enjoyed it. People seem to like the world I've created, and I like that world I've created, and I keep expanding it. So I'm actually going to I'm at, I have started a third one. I've only done about half the first chapter, but. I'm going back there and I'm going to spread it out a bit more across the country and bring in a few more rituals and have a bit of fun with it. Nice. Okay, great. And if you were given a choice, someone asked you, would you rather turn your books, these two particular, into a movie or a TV show? All these, I would love to see them as movies. I think there's enough in them for you to just sit and watch on a big screen. I think folk horror is very good on the big screen. Yeah, it's very atmospheric and it can just pull you in. So, yeah, movie for mine, for those anyway. I did put some, do a little collection of short stories set in the same world. They could be a TV series, so I can have both. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Thank you, either one, right? Yeah. And you mentioned a third book. So what are your plans for your next book? This one is, I would love it to finish it this year. I don't know whether I would, considering everything else I've got to do, but we had some snow recently and it was really cold and the ice around here was a skating rink. When you're down south in England, you don't get much snow. Go into Wales and it all comes back. So I'm getting used to the cold weather again. But I thought I would really like to write a book that's set in the deep midwinter, bring in some old Yule traditions. There's the tradition of Mother's Night as well at the start. So I'm going to set a story when it's cold, when it's Yule. And when the three certain characters come back and they just decide to have Christmas their way, <laughs> how that would be, I don't, I don't know. What will appear, I don't know. Let's just say the snow might not be very white for very long. <laughs> okay, got it. I, that's more of a Krampus-type Christmas story. Yeah, yeah. I just thought it'd be one to have fun with at that time of year. It's an old tradition that we don't really do anymore, but people used to tell ghost stories on Christmas Eve. They'd sit around the campfire and tell ghost yeah. stories. And that was an old tradition. I have a whole stack of Victorian ghost story books set at Christmas time. And it's just something that people don't think about. But man, when it just, one day I was like, oh my gosh, Dickens Scrooge is a Christmas Carol. It's a ghost story. It just yeah. never clicked in my mind to frame it as a ghost story, even though it absolutely is a ghost story. And I became fascinated with that idea of the ghost story at Christmas. And I think that's a great thing to do. Yeah, they still do it on the BBC over here at Christmas. They'll put out a ghost story and it's usually an M.R. James or something like that. And I like that because it, it takes you away from all the material or the commercialization of the season. And it brings you back 
into that sense of, oh, it's cold out there, it's a bit wintry, and it makes you feel, yeah, it is Christmas. It's just this strange little link. It just seems And I think they actually have been putting that out on a podcast because I ran across one where every December 24th, it's a new ghost story, Christmas ghost story. Like you said, MR James or some of the other ones that are already out there, it's not a new story. So yeah, yeah, I think that's cool that they do that. So Stephanie, what are some of your favorite books and authors? How long ago? My favorite book, I would say my favorite book is Something Wicked This Way Comes by Ray Ray Bradbury. His language, it's poetic, it's dark, and it is just perfect writing. He is somebody I would love to have written, but I never will. So I like his works. I like Shirley Jackson. I've got a collection of hers. It's very good write. Grady Hendrix as a horror writer because he blends in humour. He is brilliant. I caught him at Chillicon last last year and actually met him and I didn't know what to say. So it was but he's brilliant. He's you know, he'll talk and his presentations, he's wonderful. On the sort of indie scene, there's a couple of writers I really like. Coy Hall, he does folk horror, he's done a western recently, and then there's TC Park and she does thrillers and she's done horror as well. She's her recent book, Hummingbird, is very good. And I would say people often look down on the indie indie writers or self-published writers. These two have been published with small press and also I know that Nat, T.C. Parker, is self-published. But the quality of their writing and the presentation is so if you find a small press, if you find someone self-published, don't look down on them just because they're not one of the big five or however many there are these days. Give them a chance. Yeah, occasionally you find something that shouldn't have been published because it's just someone taking the mickey a little bit. I think I found a reprint of, I think it was a Conan Doyle story or something. I was looking for it for the school library and I didn't really see who published it. And it came through and it was all double spaced and the font was awful. And then I looked and it was Create Space back in the day. And I thought, I can't justify that for a formal setting. Right. I'm not in the library anymore. I'm working. writing full-time or trying to so I'm working from home since we moved but I am a little bit wary but I do like to buy and read indie where I can and I've got hundreds of books yeah yeah who doesn't have you read the Halloween tree yes I actually bought that in for the school library just before I left nice and I really enjoyed that and as I say he's got a very poetic way of speaking i got is it dandelion wine i brought that about a year ago i hadn't read it before and people kept talking about it yeah. and it's the same in there it's the way he uses language it's just i don't know the imagery it's just brilliant yeah i've talked about halloween tree on my website recommending it because it's lesser known but mm-hmm. it's a great book for kids because like you said one the way he writes in his use of language is different. So I think that's good because the kids have to maybe work a little harder to read it and understand it. So it's not a bad thing. And Sorry, I was just going to say there's a sort of magical element to it as well that feeds through. Yeah. And the whole history of Halloween that he weaves into there with this kind of adventure mystery type story, I thought was 
good. I, it was something I was trying to push and recommend for other librarians to put into <laughs> their schools for kids. Yeah, that's great. I love that. So do you, now that you've moved and have so many books, this is important. Have you found a local bookstore that you like to go to? At the minute, there's only Waterstones. I haven't found any other little bookshops in Wrexham. If anyone from Wrexham listens to this, let me know. You've got your usual shelves in the charity shops, and I've made sure that I've joined the library, so I'm back in there as well. But at the minute, it's Waterstones, because the one that I used to go to in Southampton had a cafe with it. I used to love going in there, buying a book and having a drink, and that was my treat for myself. I would love a place in Wrexham to have a little cafe and bookshop together, but I haven't found anything like that. So at the minute it is only Waterstones. <laughs> Maybe you'll find one in the next town over sometime. That'd be good. Yeah. Uh, okay. So before we talk about some author stuff, let me ask you one more question about your writing and your book. You're new to the town. So I could imagine somebody saying, Hey, Stephanie, I heard you wrote a book. Why should I get your book and read it? What would you tell them? Ah, I was trying to work out the answer to that before. I would just say to give something different a go. Don't stay in the familiar all the time. What I write is a little bit different, but it's fun. So I would say if you haven't really read horror, folk horror is a good way to go because it brings in the familiar, the sort of environment that people are aware of, and then introduces all these other little elements. But they might be a bit creepy, but fun at the same time and that's the way I regard this particular sort of section of my horror writing the folk horror as a way to explore the countryside get a taste of the English countryside the traditions and just have a bit of fun with some rather grotesque characters (laughs) that's great I love that thank you thanks for sharing that and your book it sounds great I'll make sure we have links in the show notes to everything So let's move on to some author stuff. Always exciting to move to that aspect. You've written, you said you've been published about eight years. You've written a little more longer than that. So what are some things you've learned between in that time that you're doing different now or that's good advice to pass on to others? One of the things I've learned, and it's something I've referenced a couple of times recently, is when you get, you have beta readers I believe you say beta readers over there yeah Yeah, so beta readers I didn't really start off with those I just plowed my own way on but then as I got to know people and other writers they would offer to read some of my work and it became a bit of an exchange and that helped it pointed out things but when I joined a group where we do a sort of rotational critique there were a number of writers reading my work and then offering feedback and I remember one story that I'd really enjoyed writing and I really had a lot of faith in I thought it was quite a strong story and there were a few people commenting on it and I think it might have been about four people and they all had different ideas they're saying you should do this you should do that you should do the other and by the when I'd read all those comments I thought this sounds as though my they've pulled it to pieces it's not going anywhere but I liked it so I sent it away and it was to Flame Tree Press and they accepted it. And I think that was pretty much my first pro sale or one of my first pro sales. So I think the thing I've learned is you need people to read your work before you send it. It does help in terms of feedback. 
but don't let too many read your work because otherwise you lose confidence in your writing, you lose sight of your story. So it depends how strongly you feel about your story, but to keep that self-belief, I would say keep to your own, stick to your guns if you really like it. Don't worry too much about what others say. And I'll also say when it comes to other people reading my stories, the short stories, I used to get a lot of people reading and looking at it. These days, I don't bother so much. If somebody says they want to read it, I'll send it to them and then I'll come back and comment on it. But I think you get to a certain point with shorts that after a while, you know whether it's any good or not. You've learned a lot and then it gives you the confidence to send it out. You might get rejected. I still get rejected, as we'll talk about in a bit. Yeah, <laughs> we're going to talk about that. Sometimes. That's a, yeah. But yeah, so that's one of the main things I've learned. I still try and find someone to read the novels or the longer work because you can have little plot holes that you're not aware of. You can be too close. So for a bigger piece of work, I am more inclined to ask somebody if they would kindly be to read and just give me a sense of the story overall. But as when it comes to critiquing, yeah, just be careful how many you invite to look at your work. Got it. So when you're writing, what software and services do you like to use? I write in Word. If I'm self-publishing, I will pull that into something called Scribus, which is a free... I'm very much about freebies, by the way. This is open source uh, desktop publishing software, which is which offers you all the things that Adobe's InDesign does, basically. There are things, obviously, it won't do, but it will allow you to produce a quite a good quality PDF file. I use Calibre to produce EPUBs, convert books into different formats. and so. That's very much what I use. I know Bridget's Gate, they provide editorials so they get the editors in and the formatters and the covers for the books. But when it comes to self-publishing, yeah, I use Word to create the document for upload to Kindle, Calibre to do the EPUB and, as I say, Scribus to do the PDF. Oh, and something called GIMP, for unfortunate name, for a cover graphics and things and I go to Pixabay or Unsplash for free copyright free images so that is in a nutshell how to do a book on no budget got it and GIMP has the Linux moniker of naming where GIMP stands for GIMP image manipulation program yeah. I believe yeah, yeah. typical <laughs> free open source software naming yeah. convention yeah um, what are you doing to market your books I know you go through Bridget's Gate Press and obviously you do podcasts. What else are you doing in the market? I would say that Bridges Gate Press, they have been brilliant because they've hired a publicist and he finds all sorts of contacts. But what they've also said is that we don't have to necessarily stick to the work we've had published through them. We can also reference our other work. So I've been able to bring in a few other things that I've done. But apart from that, I'll go to social media, which I'm rubbish at. <laughs> I should improve. I am found over at Horrortree. There's a website called Horrortree.com, which hosts submission calls on behalf of publishers. And it does all sorts of things there. And what I do every week on a Friday, I create indie bookshelf releases post. So if you've got something, it's called Horrortree, but it can be speculative fiction. It can be younger. It could be work aimed at younger folk as well. And I'll put up books on the shelves for if you've got a book cover and a link, I'll put it up. So you've got January's books that have been out. I've got February's books up. 
I've even got books up through to maybe July, possibly. But it gives you a bit of free promo. So somebody clicks on that post, they'll just see rows of book covers and they can just click on it and go to find out for information or a pre-order link or something like that. So there's little things like that um, I do for my own work, but I also do for other authors. And I think if you share other people's work, they will also help you share yours. People say writing is a lonely business or an isolated business. It can be. But if you build up a network, you'll find that if you put in the time and the effort to help others, then they will help you too. Nice. All right. So our topic of discussion to get to that, that you suggested was rejection. And there were two aspects of this that I thought of that one, the obvious one people think of is, oh, I submitted my book to a publisher and they rejected it. Or I submitted my short story for this anthology and they rejected it. But the other aspect of it, too, you mentioned is just having people read it and not like it, not enjoy it, say bad things, one star reviews and that thing. I think those two things together cripple a lot of authors. They're afraid to do anything. Tell us why you wanted to talk about rejection and some of your experience with rejection. I think I wanted to talk about rejection because I want people to see that I am the same as anybody else. I still think of myself as a new writer, although I've achieved a certain amount now. But I'm still writing and I'm still getting rejected for short stories and various other things. But there's one thing I noticed when I look at other writers whose careers have developed in parallel, a number of them will share their rejection stories, but there are some who don't. And you look at them and you get this distorted view and you keep thinking, they're successful all the time. How did they manage it? And you start to judge yourself and you compare yourself to them and you think you must be lacking in some way. But so the first thing is that I've learned is that not all writers actually tell talk about their rejections. But I decided that I would be quite open with mine, not necessarily saying what I was rejected from all the time, but just to show that I'm like anybody else that I can, right. yeah, I can get a book out, but I'll still get a short story rejection, which I actually had. It was either this morning or yesterday. So there is that. But I think because writing is such a long term career, if you want to write and if you want to get your work out there, you're going to have to face rejection day in, not day in, day out, because that would be dire on a very regular basis. And if you are not prepared for that, then you are going to, your mental health will it'll damage your confidence, it'll damage your self-esteem, and you can go into a downward spiral and that will affect your writing. So you've got to look at it a little bit dispassionately and learn a little bit about the publishing industry. And talking about short stories, I remember looking up a website a while ago and I've got a note here, it's Erin Rudell. He's got a blog site called rejectomancy.com. And he did a post a while ago and it did a breakdown of acceptance percentages for some magazines. So uh, I think it was Apex magazine was 0.25% acceptance rate, where Pseudopod was 3.33. This was back in 2017. So immediately you learn that acceptance rates are very low. So, yeah, you got rejected, but they're not going to accept lots and lots of people then it may be that what you've written for a submission call might have had thousands of 
stories sent in. I believe lockdown actually <laughs> contributed to this. During COVID, everybody started to write. So when I sent a story into Samantha Calls, the editors were saying, oh, we've got a thousand submissions. So again, your chances are going to be reduced somewhat. So there are those things that are part of the practicalities of it. And if you learn that tempers it a little bit, you think, I've got a chance, but with all this against me, I can't necessarily expect it. So if you learn that little aspect of it, and then there's also the fact that when you send a story in, if it's for an anthology, it may be that they've already taken on a story similar to yours. Or it may be that they've chosen several stories and yours doesn't quite fit what they've chosen so right. far. It may be the same with a novel or a novella. They might have decided on a certain theme, but yours doesn't quite fit. It right. might be perfect in terms of writing, but it doesn't actually quite fit what they've asked for. So again, when you learn that, that can still keep you sort of going along, keep you sane, basically. Right. You learn it's not all about you and your writing. Some people do get rejected by not following submission guidelines. I was over at Horror Tree. I was their co-editor for Trembling with Fear, which is their weekly flash scene. And it's flash fiction. And we will get people sending in stories of 5,000 words plus or a novella. That's automatic rejection again. So learn what the acceptance rates are or be aware of them, I would say. So that tempers things a little bit. Make sure that you've followed all the guidelines and then that will keep you sane. But you do have to keep at it. It's not going to be an immediate success. Some people are lucky. They might strike lucky first off. For most of us, it is a long slog and you'll suddenly get an acceptance and then you're down in the pits again of the right pit of depression. <laughs> and I think some of the problem authors do to themselves, because I know and this is a common thing. I've gone through it. I'm sure you may have, and lots of people do, that you write that book, you spend so much time and life and pour into that one book. And then you're like, oh, I'm, this is the best thing ever because you're very close to it. It's hard to tell. And I just, everyone's going to love it. And I, I now, I can chuckle a little bit when you have the author, when I talk to him, I'm like, so who's this book for? Oh, it's for everybody. Never true. <laughs> and every time I hear that, I know they're new and don't have a whole lot of experience. I'm not saying they're bad and wrong. It's just the thinking yeah. you have at the beginning. And the, it, like you said, when you get rejected, it's not like, oh my God, your writing sucks. Your writing might suck, but that's a whole nother problem. <laughs> but it, like you said, when you're so close to your book, you think everybody should read it and everybody's going to love it. And then when you get that one no, people are like, oh, this isn't horrible. There's thousands of places to submit to. There's thousands of readers. I joke and I've told other people, a friend of mine has done military sci-fi, has 33 years, 35 years of military sci-fi that he's written. His books have spaceships that are shooting at each other on like every cover. And he got a one-star review that said, this wasn't a romance book. I hated it. No, it wasn't a romance <laughs> book. It didn't look like a romance book. So that's rejection, but that's not his fault necessarily. And I think yeah. everybody takes that way too personal, which yeah. I understand why, but uh, we've got to, like you said, remove ourselves from that. If we were the publisher editor, we didn't write any of the books. We would say, oh, that book goes to this place and that one goes to this place. But when you don't know that, you submit to all of them. 
if it's not the right one, they're going to reject you. And it, yeah. again, it, keep going because somebody's going to like it somewhere for something. You, you got to look at it. Yeah, you were just talking about one star reviews and things. And I know when you read one, I've had the occasional one. I've even had a DNF, believe it or not. <laughs> yeah, believe it. You take it to heart and then you have remember yourself as a reader and the books that you don't like. Right. And I've never got past the first page of James Joyce's Ulysses. And there's other books that people rave at their classics. And no, I don't like them. And so if you remember how subjective you are as a reader, you can remember that other people are the same when they come to read your book. At least they've given you a chance. At least they've had a go. And it may be that the same person might reread the book or the short story on another day and have a totally different opinion. Right. It's human right. nature. There's stories that I've read first off, and I think, no, oh, I'm not too keen on that. And then some months down the line, I'll read again and think, oh, yeah, this is really good. So it, it depends. Yep. You've just got to remember the subjectivity of it. And there's, like you said, there's a lot of books that people love and and fantasy, which is my main genre of reading or horror, which is my other main genre. And I'm like, yeah, I can't really stand it. I don't like the author. I don't like their writing. I don't like whatever. A, a classic example for me, which by the way, you were talking about school librarian for 11 year olds. When I was 11, I'd already read The Shining by Stephen <laughs> King and The Lord of the Rings trilogy. <laughs> A lot of us that love to read started early and read way outside of our age group. But I, ha I, when I read Lord of the Rings, I got done with it. And I'm like, I must have missed something because I did not enjoy that. And so at some point in the future, I read it a second time. And I'm like, nope, still didn't really care for it. Fellowship of the Rings I like, but Return of the King, the third book, I've read it three times now. I still cannot tell you what happens in that book. Now, there's millions of people that love Tolkien and think he's the greatest and have read the books to tatters. I'll probably never touch them again in my life because I really didn't enjoy them. But that's, I don't think he'd be too bothered by my one person rejecting his book but as popular as his stuff is. But the point is that one person isn't your whole reading audience. Find out why they didn't like it, what they normally read, and don't target that type of person. Make sure you know that's not the type of person you want. Learn from it is what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah, you talk about books. I, with Dickens, I read a lot of Dickens early on. I had his Christmas books given me for Christmas when I was about 11. And then I started reading all his books. And I read Pickwick Papers back then. And everyone had said, oh, it's this funny book. And I read it and I thought, nah. And then I read it. I don't know, it must be about 10 years ago now. I remember chuckling away all through it because I finally understood. I think I read a lot of what you were supposed to read people encourage you to read the classics right. at the wrong age but then you come back to it later and it it's good i will say yeah. i'm never going to reread ernest hemingway's the old man in the sea again because i had to study that at school for two years which on a little novella is terrible it is ugh <laughs> so i will never look at that again but other books i'll probably give another try a good example to me is the old tv show maybe you've seen the Archie Bunker uh, TV show that we had here in America. It's yeah. from the seventies. He was a racist, a bigot, opinionated, but it was a comedy and we were supposed to be laughing at him. And I know a lot of people, Oh, I love Archie Bunker. But when I watched it as a kid, I didn't get it. But when yeah. I watched it as a young adult, I suddenly clicked and I got it. And I understood 
they were pointing out the problems in society by using Archie Bunker. And I got it more. So I rejected it the first time. And then after that, I enjoyed it. So sometimes it does take more than one. Of course, if you're sending to a publisher, you don't get a second chance. <laughs> Which is a whole nother point. I feel unfortunate that so many people then concentrate on that first like five pages that has to be so super and blockbuster and action oriented and get the conflict out and the mood and all of that in those first five pages or it's not going to see the light of day. And I find that unfortunate because some of my favorite books have a slow burn, a slow build for the first 50, 75 pages before the action really kicks in. But they're such good books. We tend to, oh, it's got to be, we got to see the dead body on page one. And that for horror, I think for horror, that doesn't work so well. It ruins the horror a lot of times. Yeah, I like, like a, a, slow, a slow build. Yeah, I like that. Yeah. But I picked up Cormac McCarthy's new one, The Passenger, from the library yesterday. And it's you've got to read it in a week because it's only allowed, you're only allowed it for a week. And I started reading it and I'm struggling. I'm about halfway through and there's a lot of quantum physics in there. There's no explanation. Ooh, of what's the name of it? I need to get this book. It's The Passenger. Okay, I got it. I love The Road and Blood Meridian. I've read those. All the pretty horses didn't quite do it for me, but I saw The Passenger and it was the blurb sort of portrayed it as a thriller almost. So I started reading and the first bit of writing is this hallucinatory episode that a girl is having pretty much. And that's all in italics. And that breaks up throughout the story. And I'm trying to see where it's going. And I'm not quite with it yet. But I was thinking if that was one of my, I'm not there, but if that was me writing and sending it into a publisher, I'd have been rejected because it's, right. it's not there on the page. But then again, if you've made your name and you're that big, they'll give you the chance to build up to this right. point. And I did go to Goodreads and see what people said. And some were raving about it and how brilliant. And I was thinking, yeah. And then there were others who were struggling a little bit like me. I'm not stupid. I've got a certain amount of scientific background. But the level of science in there and what he would veer off into, I was thinking, oh, no. The, that's a super good point on a couple levels. So you mentioned The Road. There's a book that if it had not been Cormac McCarthy, would not have got published. That I could not send that book written the way it is into <laughs> a publisher and get it published. They would want to edit the heck out of it, capital letters and punctuation, <laughs> because that book totally blows the conventions. And it, it, I know a lot of authors that say, oh, I want to write my art. I want to do what I want to do. That's fine. And that's what indie self-publishing is great for. But then don't turn around and say, I don't know why no one's buying my book. It's revolutionary. You got to be on a level of people know your name and trust your name before you can hit them upside the head with something that's revolutionary and blows them out of the water. I know I have an author friend who wrote something that his quote to me was, yeah, I didn't get an editor because I don't think any editor would quite understand what I'm trying to do. And, and it's the first book he ever wrote. And it didn't go anywhere. So that to me said, yeah, that's not the time to do it. Once you have the experience, maybe. Uh, so yeah. maybe the rejection is because you were trying to be too crazy and revolutionary. You need to get something to get your name out there first. Yeah, publishers, they and 
I'm trying to get an agent for something I've written because I thought it's slightly different. It's dark historical fiction. And at the minute, the rejections are all coming in. But I know that they will only, and it's the same with some of the small presses and the publishers, they will only take you on if they can think they can build up a platform for you, if, they've, if there's more to you. So I think they'd want to get you known and your work accepted before they take on a more experimental idea. Right. Or at the least, because the world of hybrid publishing is a little more prevalent now, and I don't, a lot of times an agent publisher won't reject you because you want to do that. You can have in your contract, I'll give you this book or I'll have three books in this series. That's yours. But I have this other thing I'm working on. I'm keeping that myself and publishing it. And a lot of times now, not always, check, but that's a little more acceptable than it was even five years ago. They understand that this is what you're promising, but this experimental one. And if it does do well, they might turn around and say, hey, we want to publish that. Let's come to some agreement or write something else like that and we will publish it. I think with the right mindset, you got the best of everything, the best of both worlds in the publishing. You can choose to do anything you want indie. Just understand if nobody's buying it, it's not necessarily rejecting you. Maybe it's just not right for today's <laughs> world at this time. <laughs> yeah. And there's a lot of, there's a lot of competition out there. So they might not have found you either. <laughs> True. True. People not finding you doesn't mean rejection necessarily. That's yeah. part of our job is making sure we get found. It's not the reader's job to find you. It's your job to be found, I think. Yeah, that's the other thing with marketing. You push your work out there and then I, it's a very, I don't know whether it's a British thing, but you don't want to put yourself, push yourself in people's faces too much. But if you don't do that, they're not going to see you. I would agree. That does sound a little more British, but it also sounds a lot like introverted authors in America because <laughs> I know a lot of authors with that same type of thinking. And I have many a time, especially as I'm watching Doctor Who or something, that I'm like, man, I should have been British. I was born in the wrong country. <laughs> but if you want to, you can be an author all you want and have your friends and family read it and have your books published by yourself. If you're not wanting to have a huge following and hundreds and thousands of people reading it, great, fine. But you can't not get yourself out there. And then also say, nobody reads me. It's one or the other. You got to do something to get yourself out there. And you will have people say, no, there's a seven point something billion people. So you're not going to have seven billion people like your <laughs> book. But all you need is that couple hundred, couple thousand that do. That's just got to find them. Yeah, I was going to say that's how all, being, a, being an author, I think, has changed in recent times. In the past, if you were published all the marketing and everything else fell on the people who are publishing you. But now, even if you're part of a publisher, even the main, you know, the bigger names, you have to do a lot more promo yourself. Whereas yeah. really, as you say, we'd rather be hiding in a corner of the house with our books and ignoring the rest of the world. Okay. I love the discussion and nobody has wanted to talk about rejection. So that was a great topic choice, Stephanie. Thank you. Before we go, though, do you have any last minute advice for authors that you would offer? Do it. <laughs> Don't wait around thinking, oh, maybe I'll do it one day. If you've got, it, I know it is hard and that life gets in the way a lot, but I was writing 
on a corner of the sofa in the front room and learning to tune everything else out around me. So, so get on and do it. But I would say if you're going to write, read, read widely, read in your genre. I do know some writers who don't actually read that much and they don't read the books in the genre that they want to write. So familiarise yourself with that. And if you can, build up relationships with other writers, whether it's online, you might get to meet them in real life. I've been lucky with a few and they've become really good friends and they will form your support network as you go along. So you can offload to them in private and have a little rant about acceptances and rejections and everything else and what somebody might have said online. So you've got, you build up this little private world as well and you don't feel so isolated. So build up your network, read widely, enjoy your writing and don't do it before it's too late. <laughs> Or do it I agree. Late, I say. Yep. It's never too late until it is, but <laughs> you can do it now. I agree. Yeah. I love that. All right. Well, Stephanie, thank you for being on. It was great talking to you. I appreciate all the great advice you gave and your book sounds wonderful. I wish you luck. Oh, thank you very much for having me. It's been fun. Great. Hi, if you enjoyed this episode of Discovered Wordsmiths, please support the author. Go to their website, go to Amazon, look them up, get the book. And if you click on the link that I have in the show notes, you'll also help support the podcast so I can keep the hosting and all the software I use and uh, keep it running for, to help more authors. When I am recording this, we've got over 100 episodes, lots of authors. Go to the website, discoveredwordsmiths.com. Check it out. There's a lot of great authors, probably in some genre that you love. See what they have. Check out their books. That's what the point of the podcast is for. So people can discover new authors, find some new books they love, support the authors so they can continue writing. So please support them. And if you do like the podcast, if you've been thinking of podcasting or you're a writer, I've got some links also at the website. Click on those if you're interested in any of the software or services that I talk about. Everything that I have there is something I use. So I've got an affiliate link. Again, it's a little bit, if everyone clicked on those, if they were going to get it anyway, it helps keep the podcast going. So let's all help each other out, discover more authors to read. Thank you for listening to Discovered Wordsmiths. Come back next week and listen to another author discuss the road they've traveled and maybe sometime in the near future, it might be you. 